0: Now we're going to read from God's word. We are in the book of John, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 35 through 51. John 1, 35 through 51. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone the following day jesus wanted to go to galilee and he found philip and said to him follow me now philip was from bethsaida the city of andrew and peter philip found nathaniel and said to him we have found him of whom moses in the law and also the prophets wrote jesus of nazareth the son of joseph and nathaniel said to him Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the Word of the Lord. As we begin tonight, I want to introduce you to a good friend of mine. It's a friend whose name is John. He's not related to John, who wrote this. Uh, this epistle, uh, this, this gospel, and he's not the John the baptizer. That's the subject of our text. Uh, but John was a friend. Uh, John was a very good friend. John was, I, I met him when I was in middle school, and John was, he was just amazing. He was supremely accomplished. He, from the time I met him, middle school, high school, he was, he was an athlete. He had one of those uh, those jackets that you wear when you're on the varsity team that had the letter. He was on the swim team, um, and he was very skilled. He was very strong, and he was smart. He went to tech. He graduated with a degree in engineering from there. He went into the workforce. Then he went back to school, and John went from being an engineer to becoming an attorney. John went to law school. He, he worked for several different firms, uh, eventually working for very large firm. Um, and then he went back to school and John became a law professor and uh, he lectured and, and trained other attorneys. He was supremely accomplished. He was also not just someone who was skilled but you know maybe a little bit difficult to, to get to know or to enjoy. He was socially adept. He was socially very admired. Um, everyone found John to be funny. He could just make you laugh and he was joyful. He was a happy person and he would laugh readily. That humor, and he would make other people laugh. And not only was he funny, but he was he was just well respected by people because he was also kind. He was gracious to people. He 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 was always moving towards people. He he welcomed people in, and he was also wise. People would go to him for advice advice financially, advice about careers, advice about about you know how how should I uh, what should I do in, in this situation. And he was also, among all those things, he was spiritually mature. John was someone who loved the Lord. And so if, if, if Christianity, if faith in Christ, if knowing God was important to you, John was someone who was just abounding in fruit. And he was someone that, that you would look up to and, and you would model yourself after him. And, and if you got to know John... And he became your friend. It was something that you treasured. You would, you would, you would think, oh, I wonder what John would say, and you would, you would send him a note, or, or you would, you would see John, and you would want to go up to him and, and catch up with him and, and find out what he'd been doing. When, whenever there was a gathering in a room, and and John came in, it, it would almost be as if people say, hey, John, John's here now, and and you would, even if you weren't talking to him, you would kind of have this at least like secondarily, maybe out of the corner of your eye, but constantly, you would be noticing, who's John talking to? What's John doing? What's John saying? I would love for you to meet my friend, John, someday. In our passage tonight, we see a different man that everyone seemed to want to meet. It was Jesus. And in some ways, Jesus had a similar effect on people. Meeting Jesus would affect you. It you would find that he attracted you. And like John, my friend John, when you met Jesus, when people met Jesus, they found that it was almost like they wanted a part of him, some part of him. They wanted to be able to tell other people about the part that they had in him. And you have this repeated refrain here. It's these words, come and see. Come and see, Jesus it 's in verse 39 verse 46 and that's really a big pur- purpose not just of of this passage but it's a big purpose of the book of John that you would you would you would take Jesus who's presented here and that you would come and see that you would come and meet a person that you would come and meet Jesus and and so as as the prologue this chapter one it, it's called the prologue uh, it's, it's an extended beginning, an introduction to the book. It's fitting that it ends this way. Come and see Jesus. Now, there's a warning also, though. There's a warning that you'll see played out as we go through the rest of this book. When you meet Jesus, he's polarizing. When you actually make contact with him, something in you will, will, will change. It could be positive, it could be negative, but you will be altered, it's kind of like the effect, I don't know, if you've ever gone to another country, maybe a country that's more distressed than this country, or you have someone that you know, and they take a trip. Maybe it's a it's a trip for the summer, or just for their spring break, and they go to another country. And it's a country where there's just a lot of poverty, there's a lot of instability, there's a lot of suffering, in the order that you just don't even see here. And they come back, and when they come back, they tell you a little bit about what they saw, and you realize, having seen a little bit more of the world, the, the realities of what's going on in the world, you're not, you're not going to be quite the same ever. You will see everything here. You will see the comforts and the deprivations in your life. You'll see it differently. That trip has changed you. That's kind of like what it was to meet Jesus. It altered you. It, 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 it shaped your perspective from that point forward. Now, In this passage, three kinds of people meet Jesus. Three kinds of people meet Jesus here. We see a seeker we see a sibling and we see a skeptic. And, and let's look at each of those and, and how they, how each of them come and see Jesus. Let's start with like, by looking at the seeker. Verses 35 through 39, there's a seeker. And actually there are two seekers that come and see Jesus here. What we see here is there's Andrew and there's some other person. Both of them are followers of, of John the Baptizer. They're both there and the other person, he's not named, but it's, it's a very good guess is that it's the writer of this book. It's, it's the, the one who will eventually become John the Evangelist. So we've got two John characters here. It was a very common name. But both of them, Andrew and this other person, they're both followers of John. Now, both of them were likely in the trades. They were in the fishing industry. That meant every day. They were used to working and doing labor with boats, with nets, with water, with fish. And so they worked outside. They worked with their hands. They were people who would be very rooted in physical reality. They would not tend to be the kind of people who were just like policy geeks. They were practical people. They knew how the world worked and how to interact with the world. And though, by nature of being followers of John the baptizer, we see this. They were attuned to spiritual and to moral concerns. They were tuned into things more than just practical reality. This world, they were attuned to questions that had to do with what John was teaching and preaching and practicing. They were attuned to concerns about society, societal wrongs. They were attuned to concerns about sin, personal wrongs, societal wrongs, personal wrongs, sin. And that's what John was preaching about, wasn't it? He was preaching, repent. He was preaching to the people, you are doing things that displease God. Sin. John was preaching, repent, turn from those things, turn from your sins. And John was not only saying, turn from your sins, but you need to get cleaned. You need to get cleansed from your sins. And so he was preaching baptism, water, that symbolically was speaking of how our sins could be taken care of removed from us in God's sight. And so he was, he was preaching a lamb that would take away the sin of the world. So John was dealing with this. They were tuned into this. These were men who were seekers. And so here's one thing that this tells you. It tells you that practical doesn't prevent you. Being a practical person doesn't prevent you from diving into God and guilt and the removal of guilt. You can be the most practical person and you still can, can dive into these kinds of questions. And in some ways, those are the best kind of people to dive into it because practical people will keep their head on straight. Practical people will maintain a healthy perspective and not, not fall into the, the scholastic speculating and philosophizing that could just bleed the life out of Christianity. But the point here is this. Andrew and this man, they're concerned about God and guilt and how to remove guilt. They're concerned about this, and they have not yet fully satisfied the matter. They're still seekers. They're, still, they're learning about it. They've heard about it, but they haven't fully learned enough, so they're seeking. And here's the question for you tonight. Are you a seeker? Have you found all of the answers that you need about how to be reconciled to God, about how to deal with your guilt, and have your guilt Removed, not to your satisfaction, but to God's satisfaction. Are you a seeker? Has, uh, maybe I could put the question a different way. Has God Is God disturbing you? Has God disturbed you? Is there something inside you that's unsettled? Something about your misdeeds? Maybe, maybe you're cheating. Maybe you're cheating how, how you cheated on a test. Uh, how you cheated your employer on the clock. How you cheated in your marriage on, on your spouse. Or has God disturbed you? Is God doing something in you? Not letting you have peace about that. Well, look here at how Andrew and this other man came and saw Jesus. Verse 36, it says, they see Jesus. And, and largely in part, it's because this other John, John the baptizer, has ID'd Jesus and said, this, this person that you see walking, literally, this person who's walking here, this is the one of whom I spoke. This man, Jesus, is the Lamb. And then verse 37, so, so their teacher, John the Baptizer, has, has pointed out, has fingered Jesus and said, that's the one. And so verse 37, Andrew and the other man, they think, well, well, who is this? Who is this Jesus? They start following him. And then there's this little conversation and a connection gets made. Verses 38 and 39, Jesus realizes, okay, these two guys are following me. He sees them And he asks them a question. And in many ways, this is a question that Jesus is asking you tonight. He asks them, what do you seek? What do you seek? This is what they answer. They say, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? Now, where are you staying? Now, they're not just asking for an address. This is a request for time. Back in, in that culture, to ask, where are you staying? And it was a very hospitable Culture. This is they're asking Jesus for time. They're they're saying, Can we spend some time with you? That that's what that means. Where are you staying? And what's Jesus' answer? Come and see. He's welcoming them. He says, Come and see. Now, two observations. First of all, Jesus challenges you to examine what you really want. Jesus challenges you to examine what you really are looking for in a relationship with him. What are you really looking for with Christianity? Why are you even in all this? What are you really looking for? And, and he challenges you to examine what is it that you really want in life? What is it that you're looking for with your, your association with Christianity? What are you really looking for? And what are you really looking for in life? What, what's so important that you would still be here Today, Maybe another way that Jesus can ask you this question is this way. What are the things that cause you to be frustrated or fearful or where are you seeking your fame? What fuels your frustrations, your fears, or even your fame? It could be bound up in some number, some number that to you represents a performance index of some sort. Uh, a success index, if only I had a number that was this high, like a stupid example would be, we have this fun thing that we, we do sometimes, there's this free touch typing test on the internet and you just type, 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 and then it gives you a number, how many words per minute, how accurate you were. And it feels like the higher your number, the more you really are worth something, that you've achieved something. It's all bound up in this, this number and some people are fabulous, they've got these triple digit numbers, others are just kind of like, do don't, do don't. But what is the number for you that represents what you really are seeking in life? Is it your is it your kids test scores? Is it your is it your salary? Is it your weight or your height? Is it the quality of your friends? Those are all clues to what you're actually seeking in life because if the number isn't where you want it to be, that's why we have this deep-seated frustration. Or that's what we're afraid. That's where our fears come from. I might lose. My number might go down. Or that's where we find our fame. My number is high, and I like it that way. Where do you find your frustration, your fear, or your fame? And, and if we were to narrow it down, not just life, but, but Jesus, what do you really want? What are you really looking for? in a relationship with him. Are are you coming to church? Are you involved with Christianity just so that you can make more business connections because you're trying to increase your client list? Are, Are you coming to church so that you can just have more friends? You're just lonely and you would like to have more friends. That's not what Jesus is offering I mean, it's fine if you make business connections. It's fine if you grow with friendships. But that's not what Jesus has come to offer. Jesus comes and he comes with answers to the most practical question in life How can I be right with God? How can I know that God is pleased with me? How can I know that God looks at me not with an arched eyebrow? Not with a list of the 15 things that you got wrong last week. How can I know that God looks at me and he beams at me and he embraces me and I'm secure in that? And and Jesus came to deal with that question. He came to deal with the question of how is God going to deal with all of the evil in this world? The evil large scale, the genocide. The, 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 the stuff that's going on that we just don't know and maybe some of the conspiracy theories are right, uh, how, is, how is God going to deal with the evil in your life, the, the person who has done great harm to you? How is God going to deal with that? John, the baptizer, told his two disciples and all of them, he said, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus came to do and to show and so Jesus is asking them, he's starting with this probing question, and, and it's good to be honest with ourselves. The, the answer might not be pretty, but at least it's true. What are you seeking? What are you looking for in, in coming after me? Now, the second observation that you see here is that Jesus offers you an invite. Jesus is offering you an invite. What does he say to them when they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? He's like, when they, when they ask, can, can we have more time with you? Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. There's room. He's got enough openings in his calendar for you. He says, come and see. And so Jesus offers Andrew and, and the other person, the other man, he offers them the rest of his day. If you, if you look at verse 39 and it talks about the, the 10th hour, that's probably talking about 4 p.m. From 4 p.m. onward, Jesus says, you, you've got time with me. Come on. He's saying, see where I live? See how I live? Let's talk. Yeah, let's talk. Here I am. I'm here. So, this is where some of you might be today. Maybe you're investigating Christianity. Maybe you're spiraling out of Christianity. You're thinking of exiting Christianity. This is what I want to challenge you with. Maybe you have spent enough time thinking about it. Maybe you spent enough time thinking about Jesus. It is time to start talking to Jesus. I'm talking about prayer. Maybe it's time for you to start listening to Jesus reading his word, hearing his word. Maybe it's time for you to start attending the gatherings in his home. It's, it's the church, the people of God. Maybe it's time for you to start asking some of the questions you have to other followers of Jesus. Maybe. The goal is this, the invitation from Jesus, the invite that he offers is this. It's, it's, it's like when I went from being a friend to this, this friend that I started by talking about, my friend John, when I went from being a friend of John to becoming a a good friend of John, at some point, we started visiting each other's homes. We were we were adults at this point. We had our own families. He would come and he would stay at my home when he was in town with his family. We sometimes would spend a few vacation days together. His family and my family. We would be away together. We would eat meals together. And when I went to his his town, we would we would get together and he would show me his home and spend the day with me. Uh, it, it was it was as I went from being a friend to being a good friend that I learned that when he when he came to his like. I think he was 33. He had always hated tomatoes, hated them, but then he thought, everyone likes tomatoes, I should try it again. And he realized, I love tomatoes. I, I was there when that happened. I, I came into his life. He was, he was not just my friend, he was my good friend. Would you like to know Jesus? You could be young, you could be old. Jesus says, come and see. So, For those who are seekers, those who are searching, come and see Jesus. Now, the next kind of person that we have that comes to Jesus is a sibling. A sibling comes and sees Jesus. This is in verses 40 through 42. Uh, Verses 40, 41, you've got Andrew, the seeker. He's got a brother. His brother is Simon, who's also Peter, who's who's also called by Jesus Cephas, the rock, And it says, Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, to his brother, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. Now notice two things here. First of all, it is very normal to have relatives in the church. It's normal. It's not a weird thing. It doesn't mean you're stupid. This was exactly the kind of thing that was going on from the very beginning. It's normal to have relatives in the church. Think about the 12, the 12 closest to Jesus. Of the 12, four of them were brothers. Four were blood brothers. And so congregations ought to have plenty of your own relatives. There's nothing odd about that. But then notice this. Notice that Christ is contagious. Christ is contagious. If you know Jesus, you find that you have to spread Jesus you you just can't help it Andrew says come and see and he brought his brother to Jesus people who meet Jesus find themselves compelled to bring others also to meet Jesus the commentator D.A. Carson says everyone in this passage meets Jesus because someone else invites them to meet Jesus isn't that interesting and this is all over the Bible. You see it here in this chapter, John in verse 36, he points some more people to Jesus. Andrew in verse 41, 42, he brings his brother. Then there's Philip, who, who goes and finds Nathaniel in verse 45 and 46. Later on in John, you've got more of this. Think of what happened in, in John chapter 4, 29. The, the five-time divorced woman, she meets Jesus. And then she goes and starts telling everyone, come and meet this man. There's something very sweet about this, this one man, Andrew. It says, one commentator notes, every time that we meet Andrew in the, the gospel, Andrew is always bringing someone to Jesus. At John 6, verse 8. John 12, verse 22. Isn't that sweet? When, when, isn't that some, uh, there's some people that are just like that. They're always bringing people to the church, bringing them to Bible studies, offering them, Things that would, would get them a chance, at least, a chance to meet Jesus. Wouldn't he love to be that kind of person? The kind of person who's always just dragging I really want you to meet this friend, Jesus. You know what this is like. It's, it's kind of like this. What happens when, when a couple gets engaged? When they've been dating, everyone can see that it's coming, and then the day comes, and, and, and there's the proposal, the acceptance, they're engaged. Immediately, what happens the girl phones someone, and the next day, the guy announces it. They must. They must tell people about the, the news. They must share their joy with other people. That, that's what it's like when you've really met Jesus. You want to announce. You want to bring other people into it. If you know Christ, who have you invited? Whom, to whom have you said, come, come and see." So you can do this by inviting someone to, to church. You can do this by offering someone an article that maybe would be a good match for where they are. Maybe send a link to something that really fits something that they brought up. Now, why don't we do it? Why don't we bring people to Jesus? Is, is it because of fear that people will, will laugh at you, think you're ridiculous? Is it fear that it will just shut down your reputation? And your ability to advance at the office. Well, you know, maybe 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 you do need to push through your fear about other people. You just need to just push through it. But I do want to say this. That's not the that's not the vibe that's here in this text. It's not that like, okay, I'm really scared to do this, but I'm just gonna go tell my brother. I, I don't think Jesus wants anyone to be going out there and inviting people to meet him out of guilt. It, it, it's a terrible way to invite people and it probably is just makes people more turned off. Don't invite people out of guilt. But maybe let's, let's just back up. Let's just admit maybe we are scared. Plenty of times we're scared to open our mouths and say anything about Jesus. Let's just back up from that. Let's not focus on the fear. Let's just back up. Because this is what we know. Joy speaks when you've got joy, it just speaks. When the team wins the championship, you don't have to think like, oh, what are people going to say? You're just, so ex- you're just exulting, And so you just tell people, did you see the game? Can you believe that game? When delight bubbles in you, it just comes out. So let's look at it this way, not like stop being so scared. The, uh, the Bible says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here's the question. Where did your joy go? Where did your joy in Jesus go? And and so that's probably a more helpful way to to examine it. Not stop being so scared. Why are you so scared? But where did the joy go? Can can you get back to your first love? Can you get back to your first delight in Jesus? Maybe it's the case that you don't speak about Jesus because you've lost your joy in Jesus. And and let's let's go back to that. Not so much pushing through fear. Has his love for you lost its luster? John 15, verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And then verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. When you see that as the Father loved Jesus, so Jesus has loved you, your joy will be full. And if you need to abide back in that, get back in there and abide, live in that, then go ahead, do that. Jesus says, abide in my love. And what we'll find, as it starts to dawn again in us, that there's a joy, and from that joy, maybe then we'll have something that we we just can't help saying and inviting people to. So the goal is really to invite people from the overflow of where your heart is now, where it is tonight. You've got it in places like Psalm 66. Psalm 66, 16, come and hear all you who fear God and I will declare what he has done for my soul. What has God done for your soul? What has Jesus done for your soul? If the honest answer is, well, not much, let's just start with that. Let's just work, work, go back there and look at the work of Jesus and let's see, why does it seem so small instead of great? Because it's then that you'll declare when it's great, then you will declare, Come in here, and I'm going to tell you what He's done for my soul. Psalm 145, verse 5 I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. If the truth is, God seems okay you just don't have much to declare. You're not going to go around and say, hey, come and meet an okay kind of guy, an okay kind of God. But if your God is great, if if your Jesus is dazzling, you're going to go out there and you've got something great to declare. What is so glorious to you about Jesus? What is so wondrous about what Jesus did? What is so awesome about his acts? What's so great about your God? You know, for me today, if you were to ask well, what's so great about Jesus for you, Michael, I think if I had to reflect on it, I, what, what I would say is, you know, what's so great about Jesus for me is that it's what he puts up with in me and what he's planned and purposed for me. To me, both of those are incredible. I can't get over it. And, and if you're just looking at this, listening to this, and wrestling with this, and you're thinking, you know, I want to invite people, I want to. I have joy in my salvation that just overflows. Let me encourage you not to just like, like re- reach down into your heart and try to turn this little crank. Just let's be more simple about it. You can just ask God, God, would you revive me? Lord, would your, would your salvation be magnified in my sight? Just pray and ask God. That's the, exactly the kind of prayer God is very pleased to answer. You can ask God to give you more joy. You can ask God to open a door for a conversation with this person or that person and don't be surprised if he actually does it and it just feels very free for you. So we see here a seeker, we see this sibling. Now let's look at a skeptic. This is in verses 43 through 51. A skeptic. In verse 43, Jesus has found another man, Philip, he finds Philip, who, who will be one of the 12, along with Andrew and Simon Peter and John. He calls Philip, and then this person, Philip, then, in verse 45, finds another person, Nathaniel, And he, he goes to Nathaniel and says, "Nathaniel, we have found him. We found the Messiah, the one who fulfills Moses and the prophets. And, and you, this is just another illustration, this, this Philip, that Christ is contagious. When Philip truly meets Christ, He's got to spread it. And what does he say here in verse 45? He says, Philip saying to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What he's saying here is, Jesus fulfills all of the expectations. The more you study and learn, The more you study and learn about the big questions in life, the philosophical questions, the questions that really should trouble you at night, should trouble you when you're thinking and acting in your full human capacity, the existential questions, the big questions, the more you study and learn the big questions, but also the more you study and learn the Bible questions, you will find that Jesus fulfills all the expectations. You'll see that Jesus is, really is, The one, the only one. Now, sometimes, Christians find Christ as they're involved with studying and and plowing through all these things and they're doing their investigation. That's when they find Christ. For instance, think about Acts 8, when this black scholar is plowing through the Hebrew Isaiah scrolls, and as he studies, he finds Christ. But sometimes Christ finds Christians first. Christ finds a person first and then they start to study. And that's fine also. Look at how Jesus called Philip. Think think of how Jesus met some other disciples on the Emmaus Road. And then, this is Luke 24. Then after he finds them, then they do this study. Jesus has a little whole Bible study for them. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's the same kind of study that Philip is talking about. Jesus fulfills all that. It's the same thing that Jesus brought to these disciples on the Emmaus Road. Sometimes Christ finds Christians and then they do their study. But the study, you'll find that Jesus meets all those expectations. But here we have a skeptic. Maybe he would call himself a realist, Nathaniel. He's probably also one of the 12 who is also called Bartholomew. Uh, in in these times, people had all kinds of nicknames. It was very common. Nathanael, maybe he's Bartholomew. Well, how does, how does Nathanael, this skeptic, encounter Jesus? Well, Philip comes to him, verse 45. Philip is enthusiastic. What is Nathanael's response? Like, great, sign me up, I've just what I've been looking for. No. Nathanael meets the, the enthusiasm of Philip. He's dubious in verse 46. He's dubious. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, can anything come, anything good, come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth is a small place. Nazareth is obscure. It would be like if Philip had come to him and he said, "Hey, have you heard of Tidewater Community College? And they're in they're in L.A. And he says they found the cure for cancer at TCC. And 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 it would be like Nathaniel saying, "What? What is? where is TCC? Like, I've never heard of this place. Can the cure for cancer come out of TCC? So he's guarded. He's, he's afraid of being duped. He's a little bit cynical. Is that you? Is that you? I want you to note this about Nathaniel here. He's skeptical. And his skepticism is not overcome by more study, by more scripture. His skepticism is not overcome by more persuasive witness testimony coming to him. Like maybe, maybe if, if John the Evangelist were to come to him and say, you've got to hear this, and let me tell you this, and he, he tells him what he's seen. Or, or Philip saying, well, let me just tell you some more of the things that he's done. It's not over, his skepticism is not overcome by persuasive witness testimony either. And his skepticism in this situation, it's not overcome by powerful miracles. It's not that Jesus employs water gushing out of a rock Or fire coming down from heaven. And that is what changes Nathaniel's mind. What is it that overcomes Nathaniel's skepticism? Well, in his situation, what overcomes his skepticism is personal. Personal encounter and personal insight from Jesus, with Jesus. Personal encounter. Verses forty-six and forty-seven. To 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 Nathanael, Philip says come and see come and see jesus it's going to require a personal encounter a friend brings his friend a friend brings nathaniel to meet jesus that's what some skeptics need someone who is a friend that will bring them to meet jesus and and this is just exposure right so nathaniel's coming just because he's going to meet Jesus, that's not conversion automatically. Plenty of people meet Jesus and they're not converted. This is just exposure. He's inviting his friend Nathaniel in just to give him exposure, direct exposure to Jesus. For, you know, enough with all the talk you've heard about Jesus. You have got to meet the man yourself. Can you do that? Can you give someone that you know, a skeptical person you know, can you give them exposure? Can you invite them to give them exposure, conversation? with Jesus, the place where Jesus is. There's not only personal encounter, though, that overcomes Nathanael's skepticism. There's also personal insight. This is verses 47 through 51. Jesus brings some kind of personal insight to Nathanael, and that is what washes away all of the skepticism. It appears that there are two personal insight observations about Nathanael that Jesus makes, and it it just wipes away. of the skepticism first of all verse 47 it seems like one of the ways that Jesus shows deep personal understanding of of this skeptical man Nathaniel he, he has penetrating assessment of Nathaniel's character verse 47 it says Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of Nathaniel behold an Israelite indeed in whom.'" is no deceit. So he's saying something about Nathaniel that's really true, that really pegs Nathaniel in a way that's striking. He says, this is a person in whom there's no guile, there's no deceit. And just as an aside, it's good to be honest, it's good to be direct, it's good to be transparent. Those are praiseworthy things, and that's part of what Nathaniel was like. And and there's this thing like, here's a true Israelite, someone who truly, heart and soul, he's an Israelite in the truest sense. Maybe, we don't know, you know, maybe Nathaniel was really wrestling with his, his, both his religious and his ethnic past. And maybe, are you a person who has some kind of religious baggage or you've got some kind of baggage about your ethnicity? Whatever it is, when Jesus identified that about this man, verse 40, 48, all Nathaniel can say is, how do you know me? Jesus totally pegged Nathaniel. And, and and that's what the Lord sometimes does to overcome skepticism. They realize Jesus knows who I really am. Then there's another personal insight, though. Here, verse 48. There's some kind of Jesus got has this this impossible knowledge about some private matter, and it's so private. We still it's still private to us. We don't really know what's going on. But in verse 48, Jesus. The second thing that Jesus says to Nathaniel is before philip called you when you were under the fig tree i saw you whatever's going on between jesus and nathaniel it's 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 like only the mind of god could have known this only the hand of god could have arranged this and you know this is this might sound you're like what's going on here you know what's going on you've heard this many times there there are four typical ways when, when people start telling you how they became a Christian, how, why or wh- what happened when they converted to Christ, there are four very common things that you'll hear about how people convert to Christ. You, 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 sometimes it's through deduction. Sometimes it's through desperation. Sometimes it's through just delight. Sometimes it's through dreams. So through deduction. Sometimes people say, I was, I was just studying. I was studying the big questions. I was studying the Bible questions. And the more I studied the more it all made sense. The more I was driven in spite of myself to think, this is true. These things in the Bible, I, I, I don't even like some of them, but I can't get away from it. It's true. It's really true. And, and they're converted. But sometimes it's through desperation. The person has burned their life down. They have, they have sinned big, and now they're crashing badly. And in the desperation, they cry out, God, God. What have I done? Can you forgive me? Can you save me? They're desperate. They come through deduction. They come through desperation. But sometimes it's just delight. The person, they're, they're just a normal sinner. Life is going okay. They're not even into all the heady questions. But suddenly as they hear the story of Jesus and they realize this is what I've been looking for all my life. This is, what, this is the itch that I could never reach and scratch. Jesus is beautiful, and because of delight that they see and find in him, they come and they're converted. Deduction, desperation, delight, and then sometimes it's just dreams. How can a person in another country where there is no Bible get saved? Sometimes God appears to them in dreams. Sometimes Jesus, this this is not an unusual story, sometimes Jesus Christ appears to them in a dream, and tells them things that you would only know if you, if you had the Bible. But he meets them, and they get saved. Well, something like that I think is happening here with Nathaniel. It, it, Jesus is talking about a fig tree. Back then, fig trees were trees that had very broad leaves and plenty of shade. It was a, a place where people commonly would sit to, to rest. It was a place for prayer, a, pray, a place for meditation, maybe even sleep. And maybe... We don't know. Maybe something like this happened with Nathaniel. He had, he had just posed a question. He was in anguish, spiritual desperation, looking for God, something where he needed God to give him an answer. He had posed a question to God. Maybe he said, Lord, send help. Lord, would you send Messiah? I'm so confused. I hear this about John. I hear this from the Pharisees. What's going on? Maybe he had just had a dream. This is what I do know. Are you seeking God are you actually seeking God are you asking God God would you show yourself to me are you looking for God and are you listening for God because if you do if you are you will find, he will show himself to you there's one of the, this beautiful promise in the Bible that I dare say always comes true God will always perform on this. Jeremiah 29, 13. God says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Are you a person troubled in conscience? Are you a person who realizes there is no point to living unless there is some way that a God could fix me and fix all this? If you will seek God, with all your heart, if you will seek him that way, he will be found by you. And when you meet Jesus, this is what you will find. You will find that, like Nathaniel saw, you will find that Jesus sees you completely. He sees your history. He sees your secrets. He sees all your quirks. He knows your talents. He knows that you are talented and what they are. He knows your hopes. He knows what you're afraid of. And when he sees all of that, And you're like, whoa, he sees all of that about me? Maybe you'll be like Peter who says, Jesus, just get away from me, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. But what you'll find is Jesus will not repel you and push you away. You'll find that Jesus will see you, see you that way. And he'll invite you, he will welcome you. And he'll invite you to come and submit to him. Jesus is the one who said, come, come and see. Verse 49, Nathaniel calls Jesus King. Verse 49, Nathaniel, he's seen by Jesus, he's received by Jesus, and he says, Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And because he's a true Israelite of all Israelites, he's saying, You're my king. Nathaniel is completely convinced just by Jesus seeing into him. And because of that, Nathaniel submits to Jesus. He's, he's saying, I don't just agree with Jesus. I don't just agree with you, Jesus. Jesus, you're my king. You take over. Take over the whole thing of my life. You've got authority over my life at a royal level. You're Messiah. You're the fulfillment of all the scriptures. You're the answer to all the big questions of how humanity can be reconciled to God. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Have you come into the presence of Jesus and, and sensed that he saw everything about you? The side that you never showed to others. The ugly stuff. The shameful parts. And having had him look into you and see all that to you, for you... Jesus has become and is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, your shame, and the sin of the world. So that in the sight of God, you're spotless. You're welcomed to God. You're pleasing to God because of the Lamb of God who's taken away your sin and your shame. And if he is your Lamb, have you also, and you see this in Nathanael, have you also submitted yourself to Jesus to be the royal authority in your life, to be your rabbi, to be the only and the prime influencer in your life, to be your Lord, to be your King? Is Christ Lord of your love life? Is Christ Lord of your family aspirations, of your career, of all your pleasures? Over and over, this is the dynamic that we see. Jesus and the people who meet Jesus, they're inviting you. They're inviting you. Come, would you come and see Jesus, will you, will you come and see Jesus? Jesus is saying this to you. Maybe you don't know Jesus, but even tonight, this can be your chance to receive this invitation and take Jesus up on it. Jesus says to you, come and see me. Jesus was so interested in you that Jesus is the one who left his place in heaven to come and to see you. That's that's entirely in his nature. That's in the nature of God. He comes to see us and to hear us. Think about God in the Garden of Eden. He came in the cool of the day to come and see humanity. Think of the Lord visiting Israel, crying out to him in their slavery 400 years. He came to them and he heard. Think of the Lord coming to his people when they cried out to him over and over in the book of Judges. Jesus is the shepherd who leaves the flock to come and to see and to find the lost and the straying sheep. Don't you see how it is God in Christ who took this first step? He's calling you to come and see, but he did it first. He came to us to see us. He's inviting you to come and to see, but first he came to us. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, whenever there's a, a quarrel, a fight, maybe you're arguing about something just idiotic, but it means so much to you, like who. Who, who failed to shut the door? Who failed to, to close the car door and it was left open all night? Who, who, who's to blame for that? And there's this conflict. And you realize, this conflict has got to end. This has got to end. In a conflict, it's always significant when one side takes the first significant step to offer reconciliation. It's so hard to do that. It's so hard to do that. But it's so significant when, when one person one party is willing to take that first significant step towards offering reconciliation. I remember speaking to someone not no one from here. The person was embroiled in a pretty intense conflict, and the person was offended, the person was angry. They, 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 they had some blame in the matter, but the, 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 the picture to them was the other side. Those people, they. Their sins are great. Their sins are numerous. My sins were small and understandable. And and I just was talking to the person, the person was a believer, and I said, Well, you're, you're you're willing to admit you have some sins. Your sins are small, their sins are big. But what if what if you made the first move? What would you have to lose if you made the first move and asked forgiveness? My heart was just crushed when the person said, no way, no way. How about they go first? I'm like, okay, yeah, I hope, I hope they will. To take the first step when the other side is wrong. In the gospel, we are the ones who are in the wrong. It was entirely one-sided. We wronged God. There was every reason for his anger to keep on burning, but he took the first step. Jesus first came to us as if he were the one who was the offender and he offered reconciliation to us. Romans 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus first came to us. Will you come to him? Will you come and see Jesus? Will you, will you repent, turn from your sin and admit it? Will you believe that Jesus is the lamb who takes away sin? Will you submit to him and follow him? So with this we're going to close. Two things. When you come to Jesus, and when you follow Jesus, two things. First of all, you stop worrying about your own greatness. You stop worrying about your own greatness. You see this here in the passage when John, the baptizer, he's got disciples, he's got followers, thousands were coming to him to hear him and to be baptized by him. John has no worries at all about his own greatness. John gladly sends his own disciples to another Rabbi. And, and so when you've come to see Jesus and follow him, you just, you're the same way. You stop worrying about your own greatness. You stop worrying about numbers, your own number, because you've got status now in God's sight. And that's all that matters. And you stop worrying about reputation because you've gained Jesus' good reputation in the sight of God. And so you're just perfectly fine. You don't worry about numbers and your own greatness. You're perfectly fine with serving in a ministry that looks really small. Maybe it only has influence on five or six people, not 50 or 60 people, not 500 or 600 people. You're just happy to be faithful to God, whether it's with few or with many. True greatness, we see here, can come from a nothing place like Nazareth. There's a great freedom in that when you enter into that. True greatness is not measured in a number, not measured in size. You stop worrying about your own greatness. The second thing you see is this. You see Jesus. You've come to Jesus and you see Jesus. And now you crave to see more of Jesus. This is in verse 51. Jesus says to Nathaniel, who, who's seen Jesus and, and has, has acknowledged Jesus as king, Jesus said to Nathanael, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, you've seen something great. There's even more to see and know about me. You're going to come and see. You've come and seen. And there's even more for you to see. His, Jesus is referring there to this amazing foundational miracle where, where the, the one of the founding fathers of Israel, Jacob, was at Bethel. And he had this dream where he encountered Christ. And in that dream... Heaven opened, and a ladder came down from heaven to him on earth. And angels were going up and down from heaven to earth. Jesus is saying, I'm that ladder, I'm that door where you're going to see more of me, you're going to see more of heaven, you're going to see God. The longer you know Jesus, the more you want to see Jesus. The longer you know Jesus, the more you will be seeing God. And so, whether you're you're long in the faith, or whether this is your first year in the faith. Let this be your heart's craving. Let this be your prayer as you head into this year. Lord, would you show me your face? My heart is saying to you, Lord, your face, Lord, I will seek. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that if there are those here who, have interest in Jesus but they don't know him that tonight they would begin to come and see Jesus and lord for those of us who have come to Jesus and have seen him we pray that he would delight us and that we would crave more of him and having known him that we would know him even more and that we would find that this hunger snowballs and we want more and more of him lord would you come to us even now in the supper when we we feed on Christ We ask in his name, amen.